Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you. You are listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station, a show where we take an analytical look at how we can achieve peace, whether that be political peace, economic peace, societal peace, or perhaps the most important of them all, inner peace. When you face mishaps and difficult times in life, how do you react? Are you resilient? Resilience is defined by the Oxford Dictionary as the ability of people or things to recover quickly or bounce back after something unpleasant, such as shock or injury. Organisations such as the NHS or National Health Service are focusing on developing a resilient workforce that faces challenges with a positive attitude. Resilience draws on inner strength to manage one's responses to problems by using them as learning opportunities and drawing meaning from them. Children are also being taught to develop resilience by learning to deal with stresses in a positive way, thus becoming resilient adults. Today, we are going to discuss resilience, the consequences of lacking it, and how we may develop it if we do not possess it innately. We will also talk about the Islamic viewpoint and how Muslims are instructed to navigate challenges in life which will bring them inner peace. I am your host, Dr. Alia Khan. I am a practicing GP. Joining me on the panel today are my fellow colleagues in the NHS, Dr. Noreen Wittinger, a clinical psychologist, and Dr. Anne-Marie Ionescu, who is training in hospital medicine. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the show, ladies. So let's start with you, uh, Noreen. Tell us, what is resilience? Okay, so the term resilience, as you've described, it's most commonly used these days to refer to the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or stress. And whilst it is now used within the field of social sciences and human psychology, it originated from the world of physics where resilience is used to describe the capability of a strained body to recover its size and shape after deformation caused, especially by compressive stress. So a good example of a resilient object, if we were thinking about it in its physical form, would be something like a mobile phone that continues to work even when we've dropped it on the ground. So we could say that phone was resilient to the fall. Mm. Now, humans... uh, under stress. Stress we know is the reality of our daily lives and we know that neuroscientists, mental health practitioners, medics, psychologists, sociologists, all these different professions have for decades focused on understanding the consequences of stress on human beings. Extreme stress, the type that's caused by adverse events, is particularly important to understand because we know there's a huge variability in people's responses to environmental adversities. Now, the British child psychiatrist Michael Rutter is very prominent in the field of thinking about resilience, and he was one of the first people to adopt the term resilience in understanding how humans adapt to stress and adversity. And this was based on his observation that some people have a better outcome than others, even when the level of adversity looks comparable, at least from the outside. Now, around that time, psychologists also were adopting other concepts like uh, coherence, hardiness, ego resilience, some of which describe relatively stable individual characteristics. 
But the idea of resilience uh, is one that has stayed and it's best used, I guess, nowadays as a thinking about a process. And that's the way that we've adopted it in current times. Okay, Noreen, and it's very interesting, isn't it, that the background of the word is from physics, but it's now applied to ourselves. And resilience does seem to be a buzzword now. We hear about it a lot. Are you ex- are you able to explain why that is and what's the research indicate? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. We do hear the term a lot nowadays. And resilience, it is amongst one of the most frequently looked up words online. Um, human resilience research originated from developmental psychology, and that was used to describe children who functioned well in spite of adversity. But we now hear it being applied in many different spaces, many different contexts, from educational settings to clinical settings, and even in the modern workplace. So interestingly, when we delve deeply into the research, we learn the term resilience is not used consistently. And that's probably the biggest critique of the field. After all, we have to be sure we're talking about the same thing in order to be able to learn from each other about it. Um, I'm going to mention somebody whose work I'm particularly fond of, and it's Professor Renos Papadoulou of the um, Centre for Trauma, Asylum and Refugees. And he has written extensively on the psychosocial impact of adversity, especially for people who are involuntarily displaced from their homes. He observes that the concept of resilience within the research literature has been used at least five different ways. And I'll, I'll just go through these really briefly. So it's been used to describe how people under conditions of adversity remain stable, how people might quickly return to who they were before the adversity, how people can tolerate or limit limit the damage to them from adversity, how people adapt to change circumstances, and how people develop new ways of being. Papadopoulos concludes that the most important thing about resilience is that we understand it not in terms of something that somebody has or does not have, but in relation to individual events. Um, And he gives the example of the the mobile phone, which I've mentioned already. So he uses that analogy and he said, you know, the phone demonstrates being resilient to a fall to the ground. But we can't assume from that 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 same phone would also survive being dropped in water. So we need to very much think about what, what we are thinking about resilience in relation to. And that analogy actually made me think when I was reading that about my own experience as a clinician. And for some time, I worked with survivors of the Grenfell fire and people who'd also witnessed that event. And as many people will know, um, it was an event that that, uh, killed a large number of people. And Mm. one of my um, clients had been somebody who had witnessed countless incidents of extreme violence within his life um, and believed himself impervious to stress. But for him, I remember him distinctly telling me that witnessing the Grenfell fire and being unable to help the innocent people that he saw in that tragedy triggered a traumatic response Mm. that took him quite a long time to come to terms with and recover from. So from 
about, you know, we can deduce what is a risk factor in one context might not be in another context. So increased risk, it can be cumulative chronic stresses such as you know, multiple events of um, that might come from poverty or living in a war zone. Or it could be a highly stressful event, just a single very highly stressful event. The research suggests that our environment, our interactions with others, the resources that are available to us, and a range of community, societal, cultural and spiritual factors will play some role in how we manage adversity and how we demonstrate this quality of resilience in that situation. And we know that individuals are more resilient when they live in communities that have greater resilience. Okay, Noreen, so I understand that um, you're saying is what is a risk factor in one context may not be in another. And obviously, external factors and relationships can also impact on developing resilience. Tell me a little bit more about the concept of resilience developing from looking at childhood, which you mentioned earlier. Sure. So the concept of resilience, um, it, it did originate from research around the impact of childhood experiences. So today, professionals use the term adverse childhood experiences, or um, they're referred to as being the ACEs, to describe the potentially traumatic events that can occur in childhood. And these can include experiencing violence, experiencing abuse or neglect, witnessing violence in the home or the community. And they've been found to have a dramatically detrimental effect on a person's lifelong mental and physical health. So people who have had a lot of ACEs tend to suffer from more diseases, greater levels of depression, alcoholism and substance abuse. And there's also some research to suggest that they might die on average 20 years younger than those who have no ACEs. But we do also know no child is doomed by their ACE score. And the good news is that for all children, um, you know, resilience is like a muscle. So the more that you're able to exercise it, the stronger it grows the more you can connect with it, the more you can use it. And the more you know you have of it, the stronger you can be. So especially in young children, when neural pathways are forming, it's really important to um, you know, help them connect to their strengths. And the child's own biological de developmental characteristics, their nature and external influences from their family, their community, their support systems can all serve as protective factors which provide balance. So as you were talking, um, Noreen, I did think of an example of a person who was not at all defined by his high ACE, um, ACEs score, ACE score, and that was uh, the Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, despite losing his parents um, and being brought up by extended family in harsh times, he was still able to overcome those difficulties. Um, Anne-Marie, uh, we have heard Noreen define resilience very well and how experiencing challenges and environmental and biological factors shape us. So given our modern ways of parenting, are we in fact now raising young people who are less resilient? Oh, that's a bit debatable, isn't it? Um, so, I mean, we, I think looking at it, lots of people have debated the idea that um, millennials kind of there's a stereotypical idea that millennials are more demanding mm. and um, that this is probably a symptom of not being able to cope, you know, is that true? Mm. Um, and I think the lack of resilience or the ability to bear problems 
um, now compared to how we might have been raised where we were kind of told to just get on with it essentially yeah. if we if we came across an issue um nowadays the culture surrounding this has changed somewhat with the um, subsequent uh, the, the next generation of children you know being raised in a time where there is plenty you know relative to previous times of war where maybe our parents or our grandparents grew up in a time of war or you know economic instability um so you know so children may grow up more entitled these days mm-hmm. is the argument and therefore less resilient to difficulties or lack of resources um you know some people have actually questioned has the pandemic made it more, made it worse you know have we become mm-hmm. more protective of our children are we more anxious as parents you know there's the idea of helicopter parenting um there's a perception maybe that there are more threats nowadays you know our children more vulnerable to abusers you know through different channels um so there's there's so many more channels now that children can get exposed to abusers whether it's you know through the messenger on on the phone or whether it's through the internet on the computer or if it's mm. in school or in the wider society there seems to be a perception that children are more vulnerable now um and um and i guess because there's been a lot of whistleblowing with various um kind of cases that have been brought to light where abuse has been uncovered you know so the idea of helicopter parenting nowadays yeah. is more prevalent so are we actually uh, kind of raising a generation that might be less resilient to stresses i think that's a, a good a good question it's very mm-hmm. debatable yeah okay so i i think i understand Anne-Marie, that you're saying that perhaps our heightened awareness or sense of entitlement may lead to parents being more likely to want to protect their children so noreen in a nutshell <laughs> if you can what can be done to build resilience in children yeah there's I think there's a number of ideas about the conditions that support a child to be resilient. So these are quite helpful to know, I guess, in thinking of through your question. Um, so one of those was going to be having a sense of purpose. Mm. And people, children as adults might find that through faith, culture, identity. Um, the other things that help people is knowing their individual competencies. So mm. knowing where they're good at problem solving, Um, having skills around self-regulating their emotions, being given opportunities for autonomy. So the opportunity to kind of recognize and grow those individual competencies. And then another one would be opportunities to connect socially um, and close relationships with competent caregivers or other caring adults. Um, parental resilience yeah. has been found to be important. So I guess, um, you know, seeing people around them who who can demonstrate resilience and some of the characteristics uh, that resilience might be built on. Um, and also, I guess, with children, you know, caregivers having knowledge, being able to use positive parenting skills, that often involves practical and available support services for families and parents and communities that value uh, people and support health and personal growth okay so Anne-Marie if I turn to you we have seen some protective mechanisms that we can put in place like Noreen has gone over what are the consequences do you think of not having developed resilience then so I think um, when you experience a trauma or difficulty that you're dealing with um naturally a lack of resilience would mean that this problem is now affecting you in multiple areas of your life so 
it's not just affecting a particular part of your life, whether it's with your work, it's now spilling into other areas of your life, like your friendships and other commitments that you might have. Um, but it might, the ability to cope with that particular pressure um, might more be reflective of the fact that you don't have the tools or the skills to be able to deal with the problem that you're facing at the moment. Um, so it isn't necessarily about you as an individual being incapable, as many may try to portray that as the case. Hmm. Um, rather, it, it might be that um, you don't know how to overcome this problem. And using things like psychotherapy, whether it's uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, otherwise known as CBT, as a strategy to help cope, deal with the issue that you're experiencing, um, it might make you reflect more on actually mm. whether you've got the tools to to deal with this problem to make you more resilient in the future. Mm. What do you think, Noreen, regarding the concept of resilience in therapy, such as what Anne-Marie has mentioned? Sorry, oh. I, I agree with Anne-Marie. I was on mute. <laughs> <laughs> um, I agree with Anne-Marie. You know, these things are um, really, really important. But resilience, it isn't an exact science either. So whether we display it is going to be um, you know, d- dependent on each situation and you know, the number of factors that are mm-hmm. going to determine our responses. Um, so in therapy, I think when I see people, whether it's individuals or families, I'm actually often struck by how much people have to bear mm. and the courage that they demonstrate in managing the problems of life. and. I think a good way of thinking about resilience is to think about it as in these things that people show rather than what they have. And people are often not very aware of that themselves. So I may listen to lots of stories of people and be able to um, get a bit of a sense of those things more than people are for themselves, because I think sometimes people don't often talk about the difficulties they're facing. Hmm. So I guess when people are struggling to connect to their strengths, struggling to connect to their resources, they're less likely to be resilient. Mm. And um, they have, you know, when people have faced tremendous difficulty that they haven't been able to prepare for either mentally or practically, or when they're facing multiple repeated problems or when they've lost important aspects of their Mm. support network or they are um, you know, members of systems or communities that have been torn apart. That is, I think, when people may more often struggle to show mm. resilience or to connect with their resilience within those situations. So one of the things we can do in therapy is help people to connect to those strengths, to connect to those resources, to uncover those aspects of their character that they manage to retain in spite of exposure mm. to adversity. And um, going back to the work of um, Papadopoulos, you know, he argues that it's that type of in collaborative investigation, sometimes kind of that unpicking that helps people recognize what they've achieved in spite of suffering that really helps them. And it has huge therapeutic value. It can help people to avoid seeing themselves as victims to their circumstances and help them to preserve dignity and connect to their sense of agency. Um, I mean, there's there's also ways I'm probably just also mentioned this quickly. There are, of course, ways that we can apply the concept of resilience to harm ourselves or harm other people. Mm. And so, you know, we really want not to be thinking about resilience as um, 
something that people then use to kind of blame themselves mm. for their own misfortune it shouldn't be that people think you know I didn't have enough of it that was a personal failing and we use it to um, you know connect with our failures I think it's really important to hold in mind the context and all of the things around us the events that happen and the systems around us because actually sometimes within some systems um, you know they're, they're broken and they really um, aren't supporting people to display resilience and, and that's really important I think as well to mention. Yeah and that resonates with me I think working in the NHS at the moment absolutely so a reminder to our listeners that you are listening to Pathway to Peace on the Voice of Islam radio station. So Anne-Marie, we have defined resilience and Noreen has spoken very eloquently about it from a psychological perspective. And of course, you mentioned the tools or skills required to manage issues we face. I'd like to turn towards faith now and how it can help. We are a faith-based community, obviously, and we are Muslims who believe in the promised Messiah his holiness, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, on whom be peace. He was prophesied to come in the latter days to unite mankind under the beautiful umbrella of Islam. We are known as the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and the only Muslim community where a caliphate or successorship to prophethood has been re-established. We are led by the current spiritual head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who is the fifth successor, his holiness, Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper. So, Anne-Marie, how does Islam guide Muslims regarding the concept of managing adversity in life? So I think the first place we should probably start is um, the primary source in Islam, which is the Quran. Yes. So in the Holy Quran, in chapter 64, verse 15, uh, and in other verses in the Quran, similarly, it's, it states, Verily, your wealth and your children are a trial. Um, so you know, this means that ultimately all of us will inevitably, you know, face trials and tribulations of different kinds in our life, you know, whether it's re with regards to um, our faith or material possessions and yeah. our family, etc. The verse then continues on and it says, but with Allah is an immense reward. Um, so the point being is that, you know, the relationship with God is really key um, um, to success and any issue that might come your way and in the holy quran again it states in an earlier chapter chapter 2 verse 157 that true believers are those who when a misfortune overtakes them say surely to allah we belong and to him we shall return um, so it instructs muslims to bear their problems with patience and fortitude uh, and restraint, you know, rather than lashing out uh, in frustration and anger, which is uh, unfortunately common for many people nowadays. Of course. Um, and going further in the long co uh, volume commentary um, in the Holy Quran, where it's a, a kind of compilation of the sayings and the writings of the Prophet Messiah uh, and the second successor, the, the, in the commentary goes on to explain, and I quote, God is the master of all we possess, including our own selves. If the owner, in his infinite wisdom, deems fit to take away anything from us, we have no ground for complaint. We should be grateful for what we receive from God, but there is no justification for murmuring at a loss because we possess no inherent right to any gift. The clause to Allah we belong also teaches us the great spiritual truth that we have no real connection with the things of this world and therefore the loss of such things 
should cause us no real grief. Similarly, the other part of the formula, and surely to him we shall return, you know, also contains an equally grand principle. We come from God and we will have to go back to him when we shall have to render an account of all of our deeds. So every misfortune that befalls us should, instead of depressing us, spur us to make yet greater efforts to achieve still better results in life. Um, and so thus this formula contained in this verse is not a mere verbal incantation, but a great counsel and a great warning. When a Muslim sincerely utters this formula on occasions of loss, grief or bereavement, its true import is bound to be deeply impressed upon his mind and to sustain him in his hours of trials and tribulations. Nay, it is calculated to do something more. It helps to strengthen his connection with his maker and make him the center of all his thoughts and actions. Uh, and quote there. So, I mean, very briefly, if I can just mention an, an interesting um, kind of point that happened in my early junior doctor career when I'd uh, been about a year out of medical school, um, just bringing this point home. Uh, we were thinking about starting to have a family. I was married at that time, and I was thinking of taking maternity leave and planning a pregnancy, etc. Um, but in order to try and plan plan for that and mm. to plan to come back to work later and make it as easy as possible I was trying to get as many projects as I could mm. um, to make it easier to come back and to to basically bolster up my CV you know mm. for some time because mm. I knew I'd be out of work for a, quite a few years mm. uh, and I'd been trying for about a year continuously to try and get projects and I didn't get anywhere mm. um, uh, and it was only in the in one Ramadan where, where you know, as Muslims, we we mm. fast during the month of Ramadan, and I prayed about this issue about three, four times, and just a handful of times, and I stopped praying about it and focused on other prayers. But shortly after that, within a few days of that, you know, several projects, publications, and things like that came very, very thick and fast. So the onus there, and in the verses that were mentioned, is that the onus should be less on yourself and more on a reliance of God. And, you know, res resilience, as I've learned, is closely tied to our spiritual connection with God. And the more connected we are to worldly things, the more the world will affect us. You know, the less we associate with materialism, then the less material and physical loss will affect us. So, so you know, finally, the closer we are in tune with God, the mm. more and the more engrossed uh, and lost we are in him, then the more we gain our strength from him when things are difficult or a problem, you know. Thank you, Anne-Marie. And it's such a profound point that you make, which I'm sure will encourage self-reflection uh, self in many of us as we ask ourselves, how much are we actually in tune with God? Really interesting. Thank you. So now I'd like to play back an interview with Mrs. Humaira Malik, who worked as a teacher before becoming an author. She started Green Key Press four years ago with the intention of bringing faith-based books to children. Her writing focuses on the beauty of Islam and teaching children of God's love for them. And I thought her book, uh, Salam, Mindfulness for Muslims, was very relevant to our topic today. So please do listen to this interview now. Assalamu alaikum, Humaira, and welcome to our show. I'm really happy that um, you've made the time. Thank you so much um, for joining us. So tell me about your book, Salam, Mindfulness for Muslims. So our show um, is about building resilience today. 
Do you think that this book will help do that and why? Assalamualaikum. Um, just wanted to say Jazakallah for having me. Um, and yes, absolutely. Um, Salaam Mindfulness is a book that teaches emotional well-being and it is on the foundation of faith. So the way that it builds resilience is really twofold. Firstly, it teaches the acceptance of emotions. Hmm. And research has shown that will, when children's emotions are accepted by themselves, by their peers, by teachers, parents, whoever it is, it causes them to have less stress hormones and they have better relationships in their lives and better attention spans. So this book focuses on the faith aspect and the importance of grounding these teachings in faith is that science confirms that prayer alleviates anxiety and faith in many studies, it has been credited with better overall mental health and fewer symptoms of depression and anxiety. And this is important because Unfortunately, it is suggested that one in eight children suffer from anxiety. So it's a very high number. And, you know, we really do want to build that resilience in these children. So this book will, inshallah, lead to resilience and to inner peace and hopefully, inshallah, to a greater relationship with Allah for the rest mm -hmm. of their lives. Yeah, I, I, um, I do get the overwhelming feeling, Humaira, from the book that it is a reminder to Muslims of the oneness and majesty of Allah, the Almighty, and you alluded to this very well in the introduction to your book. Can you expand a little on that? Sure. So teaching of emotion resilience has become a very mainstream practice and many schools have started to do it. Now, the focus is mostly on affirmations and I can mm. statements, right? You will hear children yes. saying, I am strong. I can do yes. hard things. But Islam teaches that we can do hard things through Allah. So if our child is able to focus on Allah and in hard times they remember that, for example, Allah is As-Salam, Al-Ghafar, um, Al-Wakil, um, Al-Wali. Yes. They are remembering that they have with them, you know, um, the source of peace and safety, mm. the ever forgiving, the dependable and the protecting friend. So, you know, what more do children need than to know that, that, you exactly. know, someone greater is in charge for them? That's really lovely that you framed it like that. And Hamara, do you have personal examples of drawing strength from reciting the prayers or verses of the Holy Quran yourself from the book or elsewhere? I do. I definitely do. And this is one of those very, um, you know, core memories that has just stuck mm -hmm. with me. So a few years back when I was um, a relatively new mom to young children, I was dealing with anxiety, which is not new. You know, it's very common and not only just for mothers, but at different times in life, we all experience anxiety. And I was actually on my way to a mosque event with a friend. And on the way, we, she was also a young mom. And we were talking about this anxiety and how consuming it can be. Mm. And um, we were just, you know, just both of us were just struggling with it. And we got to the mosque and they started the program with the recitation of the Quran. And the translation of the verses they read was, um, as for those who say our Lord is Allah and then remain steadfast, the angel descend on them saying, fear ye not nor grieve and rejoice in the garden that you were promised. We are your friends in this life and in the hereafter. Therein you will have all that your souls will desire and therein you will have all that you ask for. So just hearing that at that moment, it just felt like it was a message to let go of anxiety. 
And alhamdulillah, you know, these verses have comforted me many times over the years. And these are verses that I've said to my children um, mm. to read, like we move countries every few years. Mm. Am I quite anxious about it last time? And yes. we went through these verses before we went to the airport. And he said to me, you know what? I think I'm going to be okay. As long as I know Allah is with me and the angels are with me, this move's going to be fine. So, yeah, mm. important verses to me and my family now. That's a really lovely story. And, um, you know, it resonates with me as well. That's really great. So, uh, Hamara, finally, because we're short on time, but I've really enjoyed this interview. Um, you target this book to children, obviously, the way that it has been presented. But, I mean, as I was telling you before, I have it on my phone. And... Um, I, I refer to it constantly. And is that what your sort of aim was as well? You know, not just to target it to children, but also to adults. And how do you suggest or propose that we use your book? Oh, Jazakallah. So the thing is, I actually, when I did write this book, I suggested to people to get the um, e-version of it because it's mm. such a good book to have at hand at any time. And yes. it's definitely important for adults too, because... The teaching of emotional intelligence is fairly new. So many of us are not well versed. Mm -hmm. And um, it's something that, you know, as I've already said, it's very important to accept our feelings. So I definitely encourage adults to turn to this book when they are struggling with emotions. It will remind them of Allah's love for them. And it will hopefully deepen the connection that you have with Allah. Because at the end of the day, we know, right, that it is in the remembrance of Allah that hearts can find comfort. And basically, that's all this book is doing. It's not providing any new information. It's just reminding people to turn back to Allah whenever they are dealing with anything. So I hope it will be used in that way. Inshallah. Jazakallah. Hassan al-Jazah. Thank you so much, Humaira, for making time um, to speak with us today. And um, yes, we'll make sure that we share um, your book with our listeners as well. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. Jazakallah. Wa alaikum assalam. So the um, the book uh, Salam Mindfulness for Muslims is actually available on um, Amazon and um, also uh, on Kindle as an ebook. So please do check it out. So we've just heard um, Humara Malik talking about. Um, you know, a number of things basically about deferring our problems to God and also about positivity when struggling through emotions. But it's not always easy for people to adopt that perspective in the face of adversity, is it? Why do you think that is, Amory? So I think this relates closely to uh, another very common question or an issue that comes up uh, amongst many faith-based communities, including Muslims as well. Um, and that is, you know, whether a difficulty you're going through is a trial or a punishment from God. Um, so, you know, people people often think about this issue uh, or this question in the context of a difficult situation that is impacting them in a negative way. Um, um, obviously, trials in many respects is seen as mainly a negative thing, but actually trials can be perceived in a neutral positive way as mm. well it could be tried by you know being given lots of money for example but actually um you know a lot of a lot of trials are deemed to have a negative you know a feeling or a attachment to them um and trial so yeah so trials aren't always a negative thing some people 
uh, are tried, as I said, with great bounty and blessings, and then, you know, essentially tried to see how they behave with these extra blessings that God has provided them. Um, and, you know, actually often a punishment can be looked at as a, it, it to be seen as essentially a consequence of your actions in this life where you may have sinned or went beyond the boundary of what's permissible in the sight mm. of God. So, you know, a, a punishment is perceived negatively always, you know, whereas a trial may not always mm. be perceived negatively. But let's assume that this problem that's come into your life um, is impacting you negatively, you know, this particular trial. How does one know whether it's a consequence of their actions, i.e. is a punishment or is it's a trial or a test from God? Um, and in a sense, I think it's actually irrelevant uh, in some respects whether the event that's happened to you is a trial or a punishment, because your response should be the same or similar uh, to both. You know, you, you need to internally reflect, you need to ask for God's help and strength to survive this problem or to make the right decision concerning it. And actually, there's a verse in the Quran um, which talked, talks to this point in chapter 2, verse uh, 287 where it says Allah does not burden the soul beyond its capacity mm-hmm. um, so as Muslims we should ask for God to give us that capacity to cope with these problems in life and to gain a strength to face our, our difficulties and our challenges with a positive attitude mm-hmm. um, and both trials and punishments are part and parcel of life and it's not something you can avoid and it's actually a means to elevate your spiritual station, depending on your response to that particular problem. Um, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, um, in his writings, talks about this uh, particular issue with the allegory of a carpet where, you know, in order to get the carpet or rug clean um, and to make it presentable, you need to you need to do a number of things. You need to beat the dust out of the carpet um uh, you know and if if you set fire to the carpet it leads to the carpet's own destruction which will be perceived uh, as a punishment actually so the Mm. promised messiah has spoken about this in in this particular way as an allegory as well which i thought was interesting um yes and just for the benefit of our listeners i'd like to once again mention that we are ahmadi muslims who believe in the promised messiah his holiness mirza ghulam ahmad on whom be peace And the promised Messiah on whom be peace provided us with a treasure trove of over 300 books where he explained the beautiful teachings of Islam, as as you've just said, Anne-Marie, and um, how they can help us to fulfill our duty to God and to each other, leading to achieving inner peace and a content soul. So please continue, Anne-Marie. Yeah, I mean, so this is what the promised Messiah has very briefly, I mean, he's talked about it in a lot of his writings, really, but in the same way, a very well-known poet called Rumi, who's, who is uh, known amongst many, many non-Muslim groups as well and communities where Rumi himself discusses this in his own poetry, where he akins your, you know, your inner spiritual state to that of a mirror. So, you know, where he writes, if you are annoyed by every rub, how will your mirror ever be polished? So in other words, in order to get the mirror clean for use and to make it beautiful and functional, you know, you have to go through a process of cleaning, scrubbing and polishing the mirror to make it shine, essentially. 
I agree, Anne-Marie. It's a really lovely way that he put it. And, um, you know, another way of thinking of it is in the book Blessings of Khilafat or Blessings of Successorship to Prophethood by the second successor to the promised Messiah on whom be peace. It states that man actually goes through seven stages of spiritual development. And in the lower stages, man may call on God to help him in times of trouble. But unfortunately, he doesn't learn from the experience. And this is mentioned in chapter 10 of the Holy Quran as well. But the next stage after that differs in that man now begins to reform himself. And so he learns to sort of avoid trouble by attaining nearness to God. Absolutely. And, you know, trying to avoid trouble in that sense, you know, um, generally speaking, a punishment is a consequence of sin, as we've mentioned. Mm. And it's a means by which, you know, justice can be enacted as way and also a way in which reformation ultimately can be attained, which is, the goal, you know, um, mm. after, you know, punishment has been enacted in order to reform yourself. Um, but a, a trial is a means of spiritual exercise, but both trial and punishment are a means to bring you closer to God and lead you to the straight path, as we mentioned and discussed. Mm. Mm. Noreen, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I was struck by, um, I guess, how Humera framed God uh, gratitude mm -hmm. the gratitude that kind of um might arise as a result of the spiritual journey and reformation um you know the concept of i guess of returning to god in bad times and then when we come out of the other side because we know god gave us the strength to bear the challenge we then develop gratitude and, and one who is uh, we become one who is grateful for all the time and the favors that god has bestowed upon them and these, this process, I guess, we can consider that as leading to, you know, people possessing this quality described as um, the soul at rest. And there's a, a good description of that in the book, The Philosophy of the Teachings of Islam by the Promised Messiah on Who Be Peace. Um, you know, really, in, in many ways, we could consider that, that soul at rest um, to be the soul that is displaying the resilience mm. i like that the, the resilient soul at peace as a result of asking for and then receiving god's help through a challenge that makes a lot of sense i now want to sort of steer our discussion on to talk about the actual practices our faith has directed us towards when we are feeling vulnerable to the trials of life so noreen let's start yeah so I think, you know, within Islam, there are just so many um, kind of daily practices um, and, you know, habits that we're encouraged to, to take on. And, you know, sometimes people can can look at these as, you know, Islam is quite a strict religion. It, you know, expects us to stop and pray five times a day. But we know that things like our daily prayers, which we call salat, that kind of punctuates the day. It helps us to kind of stop. It helps us to reconnect, um, you know, with our soul mm -hmm. and with, um, you know, it just gives us that kind of moment of peace. So it's quite similar to what might be instructed to people practicing uh, mindfulness. So, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just, just stop and, and connect with the, now, the here and now. And we do that kind of throughout the day. There's other practices that, you know, help us become more resilient. Um, one of the prayers is 
something we do before dawn. So if a Muslim is waking up for that particular prayer, that requires a huge amount of self-discipline, which, of course, you know, we can generalize that to other areas of our life. So that also kind of helps us to um, you know, move forward in spite of perhaps sometimes how we're feeling, how we're thinking. Um, so that that practice is really important. I mean, even the ablution that we do with before mm. prayer, it's a physical cleansing ritual, but it helps us to center our focus and make us present, ready to pray and face our creator. Mm. And again, you know, it's another it's another habit, another way in mm. which um, we can understand, I suppose, our control over how we feel, how we think in any given moment, because simply shifting your focus is such a powerful thing. And I think Islam teaches you that in so many ways. Um, another example I can give, and I could go through loads of examples, so I will stop in a moment. Mm-hmm. But another example I could give is, um, you know, the way we fast as well. You know, that's another practice that I think on a very cognitive level, if we think it through, you think, how is that possible, especially um you know, in the summer months in the UK, they're very, very long days. Um, of course, it's another way that we learn about ourselves. We learn both about our body, but also about um, our mind and what we're capable of as as human beings when we kind of adopt practices, when we um, prioritise particular things in our life. And we also learn through these practices. So fasting in particular, also, we often learn that it and it focuses our minds towards worship um you know that's that's a whole other show that you know the benefits of fasting <laughs> but um you know there's there's so many practices within islam that are really i think drive um this this um these they become the foundations upon which we can become resilient in a number of circumstances that's right. And I think in the Holy Quran as well, in chapter 2, verse 154, it, it guides us, doesn't it? It says, it instructs Muslims to seek help with patience and prayer. Surely Allah is with the steadfast. So again, that's how it's instructing us to build our resilience. So we've talked about prayer and and, and also fasting, as Anne-Marie also reminded us earlier in reciting verses of the Holy Quran. How else do you think, Noreen, um, Islam develops our resilience? Yeah, so kind of in addition to all those daily practices and the knowledge that, you know, God is is present in our relationship and connection with God, mm. I think for me, something that really impresses me about Islam and I think is a really distinctive feature of Islam is the strong social component. Mm. And by that, I mean that as Muslims, there's a lot of focus, not just on the individual, mm. but we're encouraged to take into account the needs of others and take actions towards a harmonious society. And mm. there's lots of things within Islam that um, really put forward the needs of um, mm. the society or of the communities, kind of even more than the individual's mm-hmm. uh, rights. And, um, you know, in, in Islam, one example might be, you know, our kindness uh, towards neighbours that we're encouraged to inculcate. And, mm. in, you know, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, he's he said you know that he thought that he was going to be instructed by God to even assign them a share of inheritance so much was he um you know told to 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 take into account the Mm. needs of neighbors um other things that we do as a community 
might be to offer prayers together. And we've, we're told that brings more blessings. It encourages us to congregate regularly. And as you know, I mentioned before, resilient communities, mm. they enable people to be resilient within them. Um, in the Ahmadiyya community, there's a strong kind of sense of organization. And um, you know, we follow Islam's guidance here on building strong communities through the organizational mm. activities. And those have both religious and social benefits. They help people to access valued social roles, um, but they also build a strong social network. Um, and, you know, this is a program for us um, as being made by the women of the Ahmadiyya um, community and the Lejna Imaila, which is a women's auxiliary association of the community. And coincidentally, that is marking 100 years of its existence this year. That was initially set up to encourage women to increase their religious knowledge. But it's a fully fledged organization now led by developed from the very start by women. It's a sisterhood in a way for the community's women. And it's a place that um, it's hard to describe. I think, you know, often <laughs> you need to feel these things. It's a place where people can find a great degree of support. You know, there's a lot of encouragement for people on their personal journeys, whether it's around education or developing skills, um, but also a place that people can kind of come back to um, for help, support, guidance, not to mm. feel alone when they're facing adversity. And again, collectively, this activity, um, this coming together, I think that builds resilience. Really nice, isn't it? So we've got prayer being that live link between God and his creation, as well as being patient and steadfast when facing challenges and then becoming an active mem member of the community, which um, builds our collective resilience. These are all the ways that Islam beautifully instructs us. What else, Anne-Marie? So, I mean, there is the additional aspect, which is the giving of charity, um, and there have actually been several studies looking at the feel-good factor of actually um, donating to charities where, you know, including a, a particular study published uh, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where there was, you know, discovered to be essentially a clear neurological basis for human altruism, mm. um, where scientists can actually observe through brain imaging scans um, you know, that giving in charity generates an increased activity in the brain's reward system. Um, so char and charity forms such a, a, an important and key part of Islam as being, being a pillar of Islam, mm. as we'll go into a bit later. And interestingly, the Quran speaks to this in chapter 2, verse 262, where it states, the similitude of those who spend their wealth for the cause of Allah is like the similitude of a grain of corn which grows seven ears in each ear a hundred grains and Allah multiplies it further for whomsoever he pleases and Allah is bountiful all knowing so this highlights that despite you thinking you know that you have given your money away to mm. charity and you know you're out of pocket as it were you know, mm -hmm. it will actually return to you, but many more times over, you know, either monetarily or with additional blessings in the hereafter. Um, but, you know, charity, as I mentioned, is one of the key, one of the five pillars of Islam, you know, alongside 
affirming the oneness of God, prayer, fasting, and the pilgrimage. Um, so it's it's an immense, immensely important part of um, of a Muslim's faith, uh, giving to charity, which is mm. ex- extremely important. Um, and there are, you know, there are many, many, many examples during mm. the end of the financial year of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in which our caliph, uh, Mirza Masroor Ahmed, may God be his helper, you know, details examples all over the world of financial sacrifice of individuals um, and, you know, how it miraculously is returned to them and uh, in the same amount or many more times over. And it actually really brings to life the verse uh, of the Holy Quran, um, you know, where it states, who is he that will lend to Allah a goodly loan? So he will increase it manifold for him and he will have a generous reward. And that's in chapter 57, verse 12. So it really does bring to light these these examples that our caliph uh, talks about at the end of the financial year when people, you know, give in charity. Yeah, and um, Anri, there's a there's a really lovely examples, and of course verses from the Holy Quran that are so clear, you know, um, in saying that when you give to charity, you're not wasting it; you're giving in the cause of God, and um, then that loan is to God, and He will repay it. And it also reminds me of the verse in the Holy Quran, uh, Quran state straight after the one you quoted earlier about being tried with your finances and your children, and that with Allah is an immense um reward. The next verse 17 of chapter 64 starts so fear Allah as best you can and listen and obey and spend in his cause it will be good for yourselves and it reminds me of something that happened to me actually personally at the end of October and I got a message to donate to a charity scheme I've actually already donated to this scheme but um, when I received the message, I just thought to myself, do you know what, I can afford to give a bit more. So um, I did. And the very next day, I received the exact amount that I had donated from an, an unexpected source. And, you know, I wasn't looking for any reward in, in any way, but Allah did exactly that. He rewarded me back. Mm. Um, so it was just yeah, I, I was almost in disbelief. I, but I think in a small, you know, in a little way, in a minute way, I felt like I'm counted and I have been seen by Allah. And I felt like he showed his gratitude to me. So the very least I can do is show my gratitude to him. And it um it definitely strengthened my faith. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And there are so many examples to, to that effect as well and it forms really physical proof or living reminders of the mm. existence of god you know in the tangible sense mm. and also the closeness of god um to our daily lives and it's you know god isn't just an abstract concept far away from the lives of human beings you know he's he's a living present you know uh, and, and deep deeply intertwined with our you yes. know existence and the the, the various aspects of our lives on a day-to-day basis absolutely that was a lovely story <laughs> thank you oh unfortunately ladies we'll come to the end of this week's show thank you so much for joining me in this episode I feel like there's so much more to say and I could listen to you both for a lot longer definitely we have been very fortunate to get both your viewpoints and also of the author Humaira Malik and her take on resilience which Islam teaches its followers in the most loving way. Turn to Allah in good times to be grateful and in bad times to trust in him and him alone whenever you are in need. 
Our guest today spoke of how being practicing Muslims helps us develop resilience and how trials and tribulations can be seen as spiritual exercises that if faced with a resolute determination to improve our spiritual development could ultimately result in rewards from God. And, And what more do we want? The promised Messiah on whom be peace writes in his book Malfuzat, volume 7, page 53, about real comfort. He who fears God gets rid of the worldly troubles and God provides him from where he could never imagine, end quote. May God enable us to be worthy recipients of that provision to become truly resilient. May he allow us to find that inner peace and a contented soul which we all crave to achieve good in this world and the next. Amen. Please interact with us by tweeting hashtag VOIPeace and please visit the site alislam.org for the references quoted in the show today. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you all.